a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. and welcome to today's episode on the podcast. As every week, I want to welcome you warmly into this conversation. I hope it's going to be helpful for you in that it will open a conversation within you. It might answer some of your questions. You might walk away from this chat feeling you're on the right track, or you might be inspired to ask your doctors a couple of questions about uh, the possible options of perhaps what you've learned from our guest experts on the podcast today. I don't just have one amazing expert on the show. I've got two absolutely brilliant people. And can I just say thank you so much to every single expert. I know many of you are listening the other episodes as well. We had such brilliant feedback on the episode with Dr. Dillo, um, who spoke about the new anti-endocrine treatment uh, for hot flushes. And what's so amazing is there has been so much in the media about this new anti-endocrine treatment for hot flushes. But no one ever really asked the question in what exactly do we know of this treatment for patients with a history of cancer. And it's I'm so glad we're here to have this specific conversation because there are millions of us out there in similar situations. And this brings me on to the conversation I want to have today. More than 75% of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer would receive at least five years of endocrine therapy as part of their treatment. And although increasing survival, women are undergoing these highly effective treatments at the cost of a potential enduring impairment of the quality of their life. And that's exactly what I want to discuss today with two fabulous guests. The brilliant Dr. Alison Macbeth is back on the show. We've had her twice before. Alison is a breast speciality doctor who set up a menopause clinic within her NHS breast unit in Glasgow because she also recognises that the management of menopause for people with a history of cancer is essential for helping people have a good quality of life and helping them move on and move forward. The two episodes she's been on were brilliant. Episode 22, where she talks about the use of antidepressants, and episode 30, where she talks about rethinking tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. Both have been part of our most downloaded episodes. So go back to those if they're helpful or if you think that might be helpful to you. And then Dr. Sarah Ball is on the podcast as well with us today. She's got a special interest in women with a past history of cancer and a history of histamine intolerance. And I followed what uh, Sarah does on social media, met her at conferences for years now. And every time I hear this woman speak, I scratch my head because I'm learning something absolutely new 
and she allows me to think about something, a topic or whatever it might be, with a fresh eye, a fresh view. And she always brings an openness to a conversation that is very rare to get. And I just value that so much about Sarah. She's never shy to say, we just don't know. And she's always so supportive of the person she talks to, the woman she has in front of her and never ever generalizes. And I just love that so much about Sarah and Alison. How lucky that we get to speak and listen to all these brilliant experts. So let's get into the conversation and let's just open our mind left, right and centre to what these amazing people have to say. Actually, I've changed my mind. Before I bring them in, I want to read you a message to a lady who felt absolutely drained put in our Facebook community the other day. And it is because of conversations and messages like these that I receive every single week, multiple times, we need to have the conversation we're about to have. This person is saying, I've had to, I've had three years on letrozole. I had to come off it as it was making me feel so bad. I'm now on tamoxifen and it's been four months. And this is also having a bad effect. I've been diagnosed with a urinary tract infection and I haven't had one of these since I was a teenager. And I'm so annoyed. This is now a side effect and it could happen again. Is this what it's like on tamoxifen? My gynecologist won't commit to agreeing to lower the dose and just wants me to take more meds with more side effects. I'm feeling low, frustrated, and it's frightening with all these side effects from medication. Should I just lower the dosage myself? At least I've still got something in my system, right? Has anyone else taken matters into their own hands? The reason why I wanted to pick out this conversation and I could have chosen from lots and lots of messages is there is always a sense that perhaps we aren't strong enough that we didn't sustain and stay on a treatment. And I really want to question and challenge that. These are strong medications with brilliant benefits in many cases, and they have big side effects for many women. Not for all, because there are many women who tolerate these drugs, but the majority of women who find themselves in our community really, really struggle. So there is a sense that perhaps we haven't done well enough. We haven't done strong enough if we had to come off a treatment. These are big decisions and they often come with guilt and feelings of shame. What really is worrying is that this person obviously didn't feel very hurt from her gynecologist who's prescribing the tamoxifen for her. And so she felt frustrated, unhurt, and she's frightened. So much so that she even thinks whether she should lower the dose or maybe come off the medication altogether without saying anything to her doctor. And I think this is where a lot of the problems start. The compliance rate for some of these medications can be low. And by not communicating this with our healthcare professionals doesn't serve anyone. The reason why this person can't communicate it is because she's tried and she wasn't heard. And so as much as I want to empower all of us patients to ask the questions, I do know we have to encourage healthcare professionals, oncologists, surgeons, nurses to really start to listen to us so that they can start to help us so that we don't just walk away thinking we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. Right. Alison and Sarah, let's bring them in now. Hello, everyone. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Alison. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
it's nice to be here for the first time, Danny. Yeah, I'm sure it won't be your last time. Now I've got you here, Sarah. <laughs> I thought we we're going to do something different. And I really wanted to answer all of the questions from our community in a little bit more detail. So I asked our community, what are your most burning questions? What would you ask a menopause specialist with extensive experience and a breast speciality doctor? What would you ask them? And so we had a flood of messages in the Facebook group. And when I sort of thought of compiling them, there was a real strong theme and that was around the use of tamoxifen, the reuse of aromatase inhibitors. Why is one used sometimes and not the other? People seem to think that their oncologist can switch them. Try this. If it doesn't work, take the other one. It seems a bit like a gung-ho approach. That's what some women said in their wording. Alison, can you explain a little bit? Because some people call these revolutionary treatments for breast cancer, right? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, for most women, they get the most benefit from their surgery and then their, their chemotherapy or the chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, and then you get some benefit from the endocrine treatments, so your tamoxifen or your aromatase inhibitors. But every woman's different and every woman's cancer is different. And these days, everybody's uh, treated so individually um, it's not just a one size fits all treatment that it used to be years ago so every woman's going to get different benefit from these treatments and in the old days if you were pre-menopausal you would get tamoxifen and then if you were post-menopausal you would get an aromatase inhibitor but then they, there was a couple of trials came out, soft and text trials, and they showed that if you were premenopausal and um, had slightly more than a very early low-risk cancer, then there was some benefit from actually not giving you tamoxifen, but giving um, uh, something like Zolodex or, or something to turn your ovaries off, and then aromatase inhibitor along with that. And depending on the type of cancer you have, there might be some benefit, but actually those numbers are very, very small. And a lot of women don't tolerate many of our endocrine treatments very well. Some women sail through it, and that's fabulous, but some women really, really struggle. And how do these drugs work differently? What's the main difference between the drugs? So tamoxifen is what we call serum. Um, and what it does is it basically, um, it blocks the estrogen in the boobs, but it, it stimulates it elsewhere. So it stimulates it in the womb and it stimulates it in the, in the vagina. So that's why if you're on tamoxifen, women that are on tamoxifen can get a slightly higher risk of things like endometrial hyperplasia or, or abnormal thickening of the lining of the womb or even womb cancer because it's stimulating the estrogen receptors in the womb, um, but it's blocking it in the breasts. So that's how essentially tamoxifen works aromatase inhibitors stop essentially stop estrogen getting metabolized so the way i describe it to women in clinic is when you're premenopausal your estrogen is up here i don't can you see that estrogen is up here when you're naturally postmenopausal, your estrogen is kind of like down here so you still have some organs in your body uh, like your fatty tissue producing some estrogen so the estrogen is kind of down here but if you're an aromatase inhibitor your estrogen is actually on the floors in your boots you've got a hundred year old lady estrogen level and that's thought of as a good thing if you've got a hormone receptor positive and estrogen receptor positive breast cancer but actually for the rest of you it's it's not such a good thing and that's why women really really struggle with it 
So why do women, when they're on tamoxifen, then often feel as if they're going through the menopause as well? I've just recently run a workshop and a few women said, I just feel like such an old lady. I've got bone ache and joint ache and everything hurts. But if it's just sort of reducing that estrogen going to your breast, then surely the rest of you should function all right. Is it a side effect of the chemicals? So it's or what it's is it? the side effect of it. So a lot of women think that tamoxifen will make you postmenopausal. It, it, it doesn't actually. And if you're premenopausal, sometimes it actually can increase the amount of estrogen in your blood. But it's the side effects of it. So it, typical side effects of tamoxifen tend to be flushes, mood swings, hair thinning, weight gain, just yeah, the kind of the mood issues, and then typical side effects of your um, aromatase inhibitors. The, the common ones are joint pains, joint stiffness, and the vaginal dryness. But actually, with both of them, you can get any or all menopausal symptoms. And again, often the treatments coincide with the women might be naturally perimenopausal or menopausal anyway, or we put her into menopause with her treatments such as, you know, chemical menopause um, with the, the chemotherapy or, or, you know, the radiotherapy or just we've tipped her into menopause just because of purely the breast cancer diagnosis and all the, the stress that goes along with that. And so, Sarah, at this point, when a woman is starting and embarking on sort of the cancer treatment that goes on, you know, it's the one that keeps on, it's the tamoxifen you take every day, it's the Zoda legs you go for once a month. That's probably usually not when you see a lot of patients who are post a cancer treatment. Yeah, I think the landscape is changing and has probably changed quite rapidly in the last few years because of all the, you know, we're starting to talk about menopause more. And then on top of that, we are people like you are, are starting to talk about, well, what about the people with breast cancer? So traditionally, I suppose, I tended to start to see people that were well past their kind of active cancer treatment journey. They might be 5, 10, 15, 20, sometimes even more years after. And they would come saying, gosh, I've I've lived like this for all those years and I'd always taken that as that's my lot that's that's the best I can ever be um and I learned those messages from my breast cancer teams many years ago and I've never questioned that until I'm now starting to hear about it in the media so traditionally those women a bit later on in their journey used to, to come and see me in, in the setting of a private clinic but actually I have to say with time we are seeing people earlier and earlier in that mm -hmm. journey because there's now far more awareness that actually tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors definitely have their role in the breast cancer treatment journey, but their role is very different from person to person. And often the pros and the cons of those medications aren't always as ideally explained to a patient before they embark on it as we would otherwise like so I think often they're sort of sold as well if you take this your risk of survival is going to increase hugely I think a lot of women have felt they don't have any choice about taking it like the guilt of not taking it and spoiling the surgery they've had is is not an acceptable decision so I think a lot of women don't maybe make a fully informed choice about their breast cancer treatments and especially the ones that 
are aiming to reduce estrogen levels. Uh, and now that, you know, things like podcasts and the media are starting to actually put a bit of a, mo- a microscope on those things, and women are starting to question and feel that little bit empowered to actually say, but why? Or, but actually, I don't think I understood that properly. I'd like to revisit that yeah. idea means that, yeah, I, I have seen people much earlier in their journeys. And, and some people are actually very proactive. And some people actually come when they've only just had a diagnosis of breast cancer. They haven't even had their pathology results yet. And they're coming almost to, I think they want to plan ahead and they want to say, look, I know we don't know what's exactly going on or what treatment I'm going to have, but will there be some options for me? And so wow. it, it just shows you the power of... Um, a power of media and power of actually bringing women and patients as their own best advocates into the conversation and saying, well, what would suit you best? And That's what, fantastic. What, yeah. That is the empowered patient. Hmm. And I'd like to almost extend, I know you're both got extensive experience in working with breast cancer patients and um, it's definitely your role, Alison, but you must have seen Lots of people after different cancers, Sarah, and you know I've worked with women after endometrial cancer. And there's very little known, very even less research in HRT and the options. And it's so good to sort of allow everyone to revisit that conversation whenever they're ready. Because I feel sometimes we're so glad to get to the end of our active treatment that might be chemo, radio, and surgeries, and then we don't think so much about what we want to do. It feels like oh, we've done the worst, and so we most women can't imagine how bad aromatase inhibitors of tamoxifen can be. I have no idea. I was never offered a treatment like that. So all I can do is really open my ears and listen to the experiences of other women. But how can we make a more empowered decision, Sarah or Alison, both of you in choosing what is right for us? What helps, you know, many people haven't got the access anymore to their oncologists. Sometimes we've only had um, telephone conversations. I mean, I think it, it depends how far along they are in their journey. So I'm seeing women, obviously, right at the start of their journey. And again, a lot of them have been on HRT and then we suddenly have to stop it. So that, you know, it gives them a, a kind of triple whammy almost. But I use, uh, we were talking earlier about predict breast. I use predict breast a lot. And what it does, you you plug in, you have to know certain variables of the, the cancer. So you have to know the size, the grade. The grade is just basically how aggressive it is. The size, the grade, the hormone status, how old the woman is, um, how many lymph nodes are involved. And you plug all this into this online calculator and it what it does is it gives you a, a percentage benefit that the woman's getting from her endocrine treatment. So I run a specialised um, menopause clinic in the NHS uh, for women that are really struggling. And sometimes I'll see them that are just right at the start of their journey or sometimes, they're, you know, a few years, usually often a few months, but, you know, years down the line and even if they're they've been discharged from our clinic I'm always happy to see them so they can be anywhere in their journey but these treatments are usually between five and ten years but this predict brace tool gives us a percentage about okay how much benefit are you actually getting and you know again we used to give treatments for five years and then it got extended to ten years but actually, this um, tool is actually really good to say, OK, are you actually getting any benefit from five to 10 years? And, and sometimes you think you would be. And when you actually plug it into this tool, you're not getting any extra benefit at all. 
Um, so it can be really helpful to go through these these tools and, and it just gives a bit of power, a bit of control back to, to the women we, so, so she can make that decision. So can we ask our doctor to go through that with us together? Is this something we can do together with our oncologists or surgeons or do we do this yeah, alone? So or, yeah. on, um, no, I would I definitely, I wouldn't do it alone. I would do it in combination with either your surgeon, your breast care nurse, um, your oncologist, or if you have a, a menopause specialist uh, working in your, your breast clinic. So do it along with somebody. It's really important because then you can have that informed discussion about, okay, you're only getting a, a kind of 1% benefit or 1.5% benefit. So, and, and the other thing that I often do is, is we have medication holidays. So we basically, the women's really struggling, we say, okay, well, you're you're struggling maybe because side effects of the tamoxifen or the, the letrozole, uh, the aromatase inhibitor, or maybe it's simply because we stopped your HRT at diagnosis or simply that you're perimenopausal. So let's have a medication holiday for eight weeks, six to eight weeks, and then see how much do, you, do your symptoms get any better? Do they get worse? What change? And then that allows us to know exactly, okay, how much of these side effects you're getting is down to the medication or how much is it down to stopping HRT or whatever. And mm. that's often very useful as well. And again, that be your oncologist, your breast care nurse. I wouldn't expect a daytime GP to do that. I think it's not fair. Mm. I, I think it's, it's, it's really important to do that discussion with your breast team. I think the other thing relating to predict breast as well is as healthcare professionals and doctors, we're probably the worst, if I'm being honest. We're all, I think, a little bit, not many of us have brilliant teaching about statistics or how to convey statistics to patients. And as a general population, I think we're all pretty rubbish at understanding statistics. So that's <laughs> why, you know, we wouldn't have a national lottery if people actually understood statistics properly, because it's, you know, so when you, I think, Using a tool like Predict can be really helpful if you have somebody doing it with you who's prepared to explain it properly and to be statistically aware and responsible with that information. So it would be very quick and easy to do a Predict breast and say to a patient, I think you should take the tamoxifen for 10 years. It will halve your risk of dying from breast cancer. I mean, I can't think that many people wouldn't hear that sentence and say, oh, I best do that. But actually, obviously, the, the, the clever person would answer that with, but what's my risk in the first place of dying from breast cancer? And that's what I think most people have no concept of. So actually, if your risk of dying from the breast cancer is only 2% over 10 years, for example, in the first place, then is halving that actually is that of relevance to you personally? It might be very important to one person. It might be of no, you know, 1% to them is, is I'm not interested in that. So again, it's about how wow. yeah. responsible we are with the statistics that we then present to patients because we have a power as doctors, which we often forget we have, which is that we influence our patients' decisions. Mm -hmm. And if we're in a rush and we just want to, let's just get them to have the medication, you can frame something in a way that doesn't give the information fairly enough. And so I would really like to feel like all doctors that are treating anyone for anything, whether it's antibiotics for a foot infection or, or breast cancer, are actually using the data properly and, and taught how to communicate 
risk and statistics to patients so that we do it in a fair way. And, wow, and again, yeah. I think coming back to the aromatase inhibitors, for example, in theory, what a great idea to completely suppress somebody's estrogen. Let's put it in their boots because then that breast cancer can't possibly grow. Yes, that, that makes sense. But equally often, the other side of the coin isn't always discussed. Now, I know Alison would, but that's because she's, you know, she's already got her headspace in, in the menopause. But most people won't think to mention, but the downsides of that treatment will be that the rest of your body will be effectively starved of, of oxygen, um, not oxygen, <laughs> estrogen, but it's yeah, kind of almost yeah. as bad. And it's pretty much um, the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing. So, you know, do you realise how, how that's going to change your risk of osteoporosis? Do you know how that's going to change your risk of heart disease, dementia, your genitourinary? You know, so many patients on aromatase inhibitors, for example, get really bad recurrent urinary infections. And that can have them in hospital with sepsis. And, you know, it can be really serious. And I think we've got to always talk about the pros and the cons. And for when a woman is trying to make a decision about treatment at such a stressful point in her life, when it feels like everything rests on this decision, it's hard to take in that information. So yes, I think you do need that information verbally, but I also think you need a leaflet that's very carefully written so that patients can understand all the pros, all the cons and any other options and, you know, to actually feel properly involved in her decision, not just yeah. railroaded into something that she didn't properly understand. I mean, that's just almost mind-blowing, right, to how you can in two sentences, interpret the same result in two very, very different ways. And also it really depends on how you're wired, right? As a patient, if all you need to hear is that you're going to do anything to reduce your risks of a recurrence, which at so many points of my treatment, I really wanted someone to say to me and give me a little bit more reassurance. That's all I'm going to be tuned into at some parts of my recovery and healing journey if you put it the other way it's a very different story and it'll mm. evoke a different decision making process inside of me right with mm. maybe yeah. less guilt and a more analytical part of my brain rather mm. than that fear that is driving I mean that's really quite amazing yeah. to think of it that way I think it's fear and guilt drive so many decisions mm. with regards to to any cancer treatment not just breast cancer and it is it's just so important to take the time and talk through your pros and your cons and and I I hope Embrace Clinic or, or Oncology Clinic we're getting better at doing that yeah and time is patient, time is everything isn't yeah, it it, yeah. It, it is it's the it's the thing which the NHS would love to give and struggles to give for obvious resource reasons yeah you know both Alison and I have are you know are, are, are very qualified in in what we do but actually I know that the the biggest value I have for patients is the time not anything else not the prescription not the explanation it's it's the time for them to validate how they feel and to go through it at a pace to suit them at an understanding level to suit them and yeah. you know to make it part of their journey and Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming the predict breast tool does not incorporate whether we exercise, how we eat, how our stress levels are. And actually, if if we could have a tool yeah. that would say, actually, I've got this patient, Danny, and these are all her stats, and that was her cancer, and it was in her left boob, and all of what you had, her treatment. She does 150 minutes of really good mm -hmm. exercise a week, which incorporates some strength training, a bit of cardio. 
I'm reducing my risk of a recurrence by 35%. And we've got lots of amazing studies. We've had the amazing Anna Campbell on the podcast before who's done and led a lot of that research. So we know that. We know if by reducing just the processed foods, we can reduce our risks of future disease by 10%. There's loads of things we can do. And I wonder if we put all of that into the hat as well, whether our decision-making process yet again would be different. I think it definitely would. And the other thing is with these things like the rheumatase inhibitors, we're making women so sore and so stiff. I spoke to a, a woman the other day who couldn't even bend down and, and play with her grandchildren. But, you know, we're making them so sore and stiff. So we're, we're stopping them exercising. So actually, I think that we're often putting them at more at risk for breast cancer recurrence because they can't exercise. They're putting on their weight. They, you know, they're depressed. So often they're making, you know, lifestyle choices, you know, eating the wrong stuff, drinking too much because they're depressed, so actually they're increasing the risk of their breast cancer recurrence. And, and maybe if we just, you know, had, were able to have that conversation with them, we just, you know, stop the guilt about not taking that aromatase inhibitor, actually they could make the far better lifestyle choices and reduce the risk. And I, and I say this to women all the time in my, in my breast cancer menopause clinic, you know what, this is the biggest thing that's going to reduce your risk of recurrence is your healthy diet, your lifestyle, your weight loss, your positive attitude. That's the thing that's going to make the big difference. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got conversations like hormone replacement therapy. And I want to talk about it more and more and more because I feel Maybe the more we talk about it, we will all get to a place where we can talk about it much less emotionally. And because it's got such an amazing role in treating perimenopause and menopause, we've got to talk about it, whether we've had cancer or no cancer. But it's so emotionally heavily laden always that I feel it's, yeah, people won't shy away from it or they hide behind it. And I've got women who are on, for example, hormone replacement therapy who message privately and say, Danny, I'm on human replacement therapy, I'd never say in the group because I'm worried that I'd be judged, for example. So for doctors, for patients, it's a really difficult one to navigate, isn't it? Again, guilt and shame. But no woman I've ever met has made that decision lately, like big decisions we all have to make about our treatment. Does it still come up in practice, Alison, whether it's NHS practice or whether it's private practice, the conversation, do women want to know about it or do women worry so much about it? They think I'm not even going to go there and inform myself. How is it in in a clinical setting? So I would say in private practice, that is one of the reasons why women will come to us because A, they haven't even they've not been able to have the conversation with their their oncologist or their surgeon or they were too embarrassed so they just felt guilty and wouldn't want to have that conversation so I do see more women in private practice but I think it's becoming more and more acceptable to discuss it in NHS settings as well and you're right it's all about it's all about the guilt the fear the fear of asking and I think every woman should be allowed to have that discussion because there are risks and there's benefits and there's so much we don't know and there's so much conflicting evidence but it's just so important to talk about the risks of not giving something as well as the risks of giving something and it's every woman's cancer is different and her journey is different and her lifestyle and her home life is different and so it is an individual decision for every woman yeah so Sarah, before we started recording, you said that sometimes women 
come into a conversation, they've almost made their mind up. Can you tell me a little bit about what happens to these women? What is their thought process before they come and see you? And what happens? I think for many women that have sought me and my colleagues out in private practice, they have been on an awful long journey with breast cancer. And they have been looking and knocking on doors for years and years. They've often been told they must never have HRT. And they have usually, that's usually just stuck in their head. So they've got this sort of fixed belief that that's not an option. Um, And therefore they have tried everything else. Many of them have had maybe CBT, they may have tried various over-the-counter supplements, and that's not to say they're all necessarily 100% safe for women with a history of breast cancer, but they may have tried various things. They might have tried some of the alternatives that can be prescribed, so things like antidepressants or there's some other prescribed medication that can help to some extent with the hot sweats and flushes. They don't tend to work fantastically well for most people, but for some people they it can be a enough of a game changer that it makes their life a bit better. They may have tried to have conversations with their GP or their breast cancer surgeon or their oncologist or their breast cancer specialist nurse. They might have even tried to seek second opinions. They might have been referred to an NHS menopause clinic, but many of them feel like, and this isn't everybody, I'm not saying it's everybody, and I've seen probably the worst tip of the iceberg so appreciate that I'm coming from that that setting that they literally feel like every single door they've knocked on has been slammed in their face and not only has it been slammed in their face but they've been made to feel guilty in the process and like they're a pest and you know why are you why are you moaning about your joint pains or why are you moaning about your hot sweats aren't you really lucky to be alive and hasn't the NHS pulled out all the stops for you already do you have to keep bothering me and I think that eats away at your confidence, your self-esteem, your um, enthusiasm to keep trying. And, and, and I think many of them after a while just learned that, well, this really is it. That is, there is nowhere to go. And it shouldn't be this way. But that thought that, well, at least if you have the luxury of being able to go privately, you've probably got a bit more time and you may have a little bit more involvement in your decision. So I've done a number of surveys while I've been working um, with the Newton Health Menopause Society, looking at the patients who did come to see us with breast cancer and what level of involvement they felt they'd ever had in decisions about their care relating to any of their breast cancer treatment. And I think there was only 6% of the patients that I surveyed, which was a few hundred, who actually felt they'd had any involvement in any decisions about their care. And so our mantra always was to make you involved. You know, we might, we don't have all the answers either. Gosh, I wish we did. But the amount of times that Alison and I might talk or or myself and any other colleagues or myself and, and, and patients and say, they'll ask a specific question. And I say, well, the data says, you know, some of the data says that would be a good thing. Some of the data says it would be a neutral thing. Some of the data says it might not be a very good idea. Now, where do we go with that information? And it's again, it's that information sharing, sharing uncertainty and recognising that 
different people will make a different decision. But I think ultimately, and the reason that people like Alison and I became doctors in the first place is the desire to help the person in front of you to have a better life. So what is quality of life? And quality of life is an individual decision, isn't it? And it's so if someone comes and says, I, you know, I can't get off the sofa, I can't play with my children, I have to give up work, I haven't been able to go anywhere near my sexual partner for years because everything's dried up down below. This is not an existence. I don't care if you told me that HRT will definitely make my breast cancer occur. I'm happy to take that because I might have a few years of feeling like me again. Now, luckily, I can reassure them that actually there is no good evidence to suggest that HRT will increase the risk of recurrence. We're still not 100% sure, but the data that there is there suggests no increase in risk. But you have to share that, you know, and I have a very long conversation with patients about that because that comes down to one of the big cruxes of the matter. But the other main crux of the matter is what is that person's quality of life like? And so many patients say, you know, if I get five years of feeling well, I'll accept a small risk. And yes, there is always a risk of recurrence with breast cancer. Unfortunately, no matter what you do, you could never go anywhere near HRT again. You could take your tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor. You could you know, you could eat the perfect diet, exercise every day, you could, you know, you could have the most perfect lifestyle. And unfortunately, bad luck happens to nice and not so nice people. And it's all about risk. So, it, you know, it, it, it's as simple as, you know, I'm going to go on holiday to France, shall I walk there? Shall I cycle there? Shall I get the ferry? Shall I go in the go on the tunnel? Shall I fly? You know, there are pros and cons and different Each, costs yeah. of all of those things. And actually, we can do the same with breast cancer. It just it feels more emotive, understandably. Oh, um, I love that analogy. How do I get to where I want to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what? I'm just trying yeah, I'm to think... use that. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to use that in my next NHS clinic, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I, I just wonder, there must be too. other... There must be other areas in medicine. I'm sure there are. I'm, we haven't prepped for this, so we might not have an answer now, but it's something we can maybe think of that are as controversial as HRT after cancer, where maybe the evidence is as all over the place. There must be other areas. Are there other areas that you see in general practice? Is it? I, I know, you know, if I go and need a knee replacement, I go to three different surgeons, I'm probably going to be offered three different procedures. Well, none of them is right or wrong. They just do different things. Are there other areas that we can compare to this emotive subject? I mean, I think I think most of medicine is not black and white. I think people think it's you know evidence black and white, but but actually most of it's not. I mean, the chat now about you know having sticking absolutely everybody on a statin for their cholesterol. You know, well, you know, should we be or? You know, but is sticking everybody in a statin just uh, meaning that they can just eat all the wrong things and think, well, I'm fine, I'm taking a statin, my cholesterol is going to be fine. I, you know, I think with all areas of medicine, there's there's a lot of conflict. I think the problem with when it comes to breast cancer is that it's so emotive, isn't it? And so much guilt about it. That, that's yeah. personally what I think. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I know. I for the last week I've been thinking about that question, Danny, and I, I wish I could come up with another example which I think 
shows mm. as much controversy. And I genuinely can't. But I mean, Alison's absolutely right. Every single thing we do, whether I'm, you know, you could give a cream for athlete's foot and you would still be going, well, would that cream be better or would that cream? But actually, you're not going to worry about that too much because it's athlete's foot. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that it's a predominantly female disease and it's something to do with breast and it's something to do with the fact that estrogen is such a marmite hormone, isn't it? Most people <laughs> think it's the devil's work. And then there's some of us who actually think it's an incredible hormone used responsibly. And I wish we understood, you know, even if you go back, even if we're not talking about patients with breast cancer, but you're talking about women who are considering HRT and they're considering their risk of breast cancer. If I said to, you know, a hundred people, does HRT cause breast cancer? Then I will probably get the majority of people say, yes, it does. And that's learnt behaviour from the media predominantly over the last 20 years. But actually, if Alison and I started regurgitating all of the data which relates to that, one, it would take us weeks because there literally is so much of it and none of it is ever categorically one way or the other. And it's never, the studies are never quite either long enough or well or good enough quality or they're not relating to the right type of HRT. So actually after 60, what are we, 60 years now of HRT, the jury is still out as to whether HRT causes breast cancer. So if we've been waiting 60 years for that answer, there's something deeply complicated about it, isn't there? And, and that gets a whole lot more complicated when you're talking about patients with breast cancer mm. and their future risks. And I I mean, I'm, a, I'm quite open about the fact I'm a big fan of Avram Blooming and his work. And you know, I've listened to him and various other eminent people talking about breast cancer for for years now. And I wish somebody or all of us collectively, even better, understood the true underlying mechanisms of breast cancer, because I don't actually think anybody truly understands. And this whole thing about, you know, for example, this always blows my mind, like if, for example, you use something like tamoxifen to dampen down estrogen for probably a couple of years, don't take that couple as, you know, set in stone, but about a couple of years, you probably suppress cancer cells sufficiently that they, then if you reintroduced estrogen a bit later on, the estrogen is probably going to help kill off any cancer cells and is actually then a good thing. So that sort of thing is a really crucial concept, but it's one that we don't fully understand yet. We've got ideas about it. And it's where the, the, the molecular science and the people that work in laboratories, you know, that never see a patient have <laughs> got some idea about. But those of us that are working with the patients are desperate for that information to translate into something that we can use practically. It's, it's, yeah, so it's a fascinating area. But what I'm, what I'm really passionate about is trying to include everybody in this conversation and not create this sort of war between, well, there's people that are pro-HRT and there's people that are anti-HRT because that does nobody any favours and it doesn't help the women no. that need to know the no. answers to their own questions. 
And I think it's so important. I mean, I bang on about this in breast clinic all the time. Women are just not, they're not just a set of boobs. We've got to think of the women holistically. Um, and I think that's, you know, Sarah and I were both GPs. And, and so I think, I'm not trying to bang a GP's drum, but we're good at looking at women holistically. When I work in breast clinic, everyone's so focused on the boobs, but, you know, just got to keep thinking, okay, what about the bones? What about the heart? What about the vagina? Um, you know, my colleagues will laugh at me because I'm obsessed with ask, asking every woman about the vaginal dryness. <laughs> but we should be, we need to be, because actually that's one of the reasons these women are stopping taking their medications or, you know, well, we are causing carnage and we need to remember that with some of our medications and I think in breast clinic we forget about that um we just purely focus on the boobs and we we have to think of the women holistically I and always I remember so you know protect those bones yeah <laughs> and you know sitting sort of in between all of these amazing doctors that have different opinions like I think all of all of the doctors are amazing as long as they talk about how can we manage menopause after cancer. I love all of you, even if your opinions divide, because I hear from so many patients that we want more answers and we really want more trials and statistics. And it might happen one day, but maybe not in our generation even. So mm. how can we still serve those that are here today? And how can we bring all of those voices together? And I feel a lot of this will, a lot of it will be patient driven. And the more we can encourage all of our patients, and I, I like to do that on all of my podcast episodes in different sort of ways to say, how can we become this more empowered and difficult patient? How can we ask the difficult questions, even if we worry about what our doctor might think or what the answer might be? Because the more we ask for solutions, the more we're saying, hello, I've got a problem here and help me. And so even if all of us inquired about HRT, whatever cancer we've had, I think that's a good thing because it'll our doctor's ears are going to be ringing thinking, oh my gosh, all of these women, <laughs> they need some help. And how can we come up with something that is hormonally or non-hormonally, I don't care what it is that you do to help us, as long as you give us options. And yeah. I think often women feel they haven't got an option. And that's awful when you think you're running out of options or you haven't got an options. I remember my uh, friend contacted me, a, a GP friend contacted me to say that he had a patient who was in her early 80s and she'd had breast cancer in her early 50s and she'd had vaginal dryness ever since, so 30 years of vaginal dryness. And she'd finally raised it with the doctor, I think. And so he had referred her. He felt nervous about treating it which is understandable for a GP. So he referred her back to the breast team locally, which of course was a completely different breast surgeon to 30 years ago, but it was the breast team. And they didn't see the patient. They just wrote back and said, sorry, she can't have estrogen. And I just, I just thought, what, you know, nobody has thought about her as an individual. Has anybody even clocked her date of birth? Her, you know, she's 30 years after her breast cancer and she's asking for help with something that there's no evidence to suggest that using vaginal estrogen has any safety issues for women with breast cancer like and I just thought if the breast team couldn't help with that how can we then expect GPs to be empowered to actually go actually I could deal with that myself I just think that's really sad and I would I would just love conversations where 
GPs, breast surgeons, breast cancer specialists, nurses, oncologists and patients actually are all talking and all helping each other and supporting each other because in silos there's brilliant ones of all of those things that have got an open mind and treat patients and individuals but there's also I fear and I and I've I've learned this from what patients tell me I'm not saying that's my personal experience but from what patients tell me that there's some people that are just not on this page at all and they're not prepared to even open their mind and and think about that the subject and I had quite a lot of questions from people that tried to reach out to the healthcare team and they didn't get the answer or they've had such long waiting lists. And I would like to bring some of these questions to you. I know we touched on some of the um, topics already. So I just want to give you some question. Give me a quick answer as if you're in a big, busy NHS clinic, Alison, <laughs> because I know you're going to run out of time. But we've had so many questions. We're not going to get through all of them. But along the subject that we've just been discussing, a lady said, is there any chance that taking HRT with tamoxifen might be less risky than stopping tamoxifen and taking HRT? And I guess the question here is really, uh, to, to both of you or one of you, do we know anything about using HRT when you're on tamoxifen or is there no data? Like, what do we know? So it, it is really that uh, another $64 million question is, would you be better staying on your tamoxifen and taking HRT or would you be better coming off your tamoxifen and taking your HRT so again a very individual discussion about that individual person and and like Alison often says a drug holiday for some people can be helpful because it might be that it's the tamoxifen side effects that are causing the problematic symptoms and that may be you know if you tried without that drug for six to eight weeks actually you may feel significantly better and then you maybe wouldn't necessarily need to explore the idea of HRT, but you may try a drug holiday and find that you know better. Essentially, there's one study which which was slightly surprising, I think, given what had gone before, that suggested that if you were on tamoxifen and then took HRT, that you may be slightly more likely to get a recurrence than if you weren't on the tamoxifen. But then another study that was running at exactly the same time with a very similar population of patients actually found the opposite, that you were relatively protected. So the, the logic and the science would suggest you're probably relatively protected because if you think the tamoxifen is, is kind of blocking your the estrogen receptors on your boobs, but it's allowing the HRT to get elsewhere. That again, that's a huge question that needs so much more data to answer it. Um, okay, so it is a lack of data as well. Yeah, I mean, what we often do in NHS clinic is we, we say, look, why don't you try a different brand or try splitting the dose uh, 10 milligrams twice a day or try a different brand or taking it at a slightly different time of the day. Um, so again, before you kind of dive into your HRT, maybe trying to do that. Um, if you're an aromatase inhibitor, switch to a different aromatase inhibitor. Obviously, we, you can't take HRT if you're an aromatase inhibitor because it's just there's no point. It's going to completely um, cancel out your estrogen. But you know, as I say, before you before you decided to do that, there, there's lots of different tweaks you can do. Mm. But but possibly going on HRT is the right thing for you. Mm. Mm. And then going down to the vaginal moisturizers because you were so clear about what you just said, Sarah. But it's not so clear for us patients. This lady saying. 
Vaginal moisturizer isn't quite cutting. The urinary symptoms are pelvic floor weakness and pelvic floor weakness. Uh, so I'm thinking vaginal estrogen is the way forward, but I'm worried about it. What is the safety? Some people say, she said, it's um, the equivalent to taking a one HRT tablet, but I, she doesn't know. Is this something this breast cancer person who's had positive estrogen positive Caribbean cancer can safely explore? Did she say, was she on tamoxifen or was she on aromatase inhibitor? Because it's um, a wee bit of debate. <laughs> okay, she didn't say, so tell us the difference. Because what I know now, Alison, yeah, about 20% so, of all yeah. of our listeners are healthcare professionals and they probably want to know <laughs> what to do. What's yeah, the difference? So if you have a hormone septopositive breast cancer, there's no evidence that giving vaginal estrogen is going to increase your risk of breast cancer recurrence. So if you're on no medication or if you're on tamoxifen, it's thought of as, as a good thing to do. The controversy comes if you're on an aromatase inhibitor, because with the aromatase inhibitor, as I say, you're trying to keep that estrogen to absolutely negligible levels. And then by introducing even a, a low dose of estrogen, then it, it's thought to be counterproductive and might possibly increase your risk of breast cancer recurrence. And there's been a couple of tiny studies that suggested it might possibly increase your risk of breast cancer recurrence. The problem is that if you're on aromatase inhibitor, you're possibly at slightly higher risk of recurrence anyway. And as Sarah says, anyone can get a recurrence. But if you've got all that vaginal dryness, then you're at A, your quality of life is usually rubbish. You can't have sex with your partner. You might have recurrent urine infections. And then the risks of recurrent urine infections, ending up in hospital with, with urosepsis. You know, I think most people don't think about those and it's so important. And actually, if you end up in hospital with sepsis, your risk of dying is pretty big. Whereas it's just all theoretical, the risk of giving um, a vaginal estrogen with aromatase inhibitor. And actually what we do know is that if you take it for three months, then there's no sustained elevated serum estrogen levels after three months use. So some people are told, oh, well, just take it for a few weeks and stop and start and stop and start. But actually that's probably not a good thing to do. It's the stopping and starting that might put you at slight increased risk. If you take it, then we know after three months, there's no sustained elevated levels so I certainly it's all about once again taking the pros and cons quality of life risk of urine infections risk of antibiotics the amount of people that end up with kidney damage down to antibiotics you know is fairly significant but again nobody thinks about that and then that there's other medications you can use something called prasterone that I'm using more and more and I think Sarah's using more and more of it as well in women that are on aromatase inhibitors what is that it's a DHEA pessary, so it's um, it's just it's just different to vaginal estrogen. But it, it if you're on aromatase inhibitor, it stops the pessary aromatizing to estrogen. So that's one of the reasons why it's thought to be safer. So I, I'm tending to use that more and more. That I think that one of the problems is in the UK is it's not on all um, formularies. Um, so I did advise one lady to try, it and then her. Um, her local health board wouldn't let the the chemist dispense it because it wasn't on their formulary so we had to go back to square one then so it's mm. a bit of a postcode lottery because mm. we've had another lady ask and she said how can vaginal estrogen strengthen the pelvic floor in relation to helping with urinary, urinary urgency symptoms i get that it helps with vaginal dryness but how can it strengthen the pelvic floor i think one 
geographical or anatomical anatomical closeness so our our water pipe and the bladder sits effectively on top of of the vagina so uh, any estrogen that you put in the vagina will sort of seep its way through to the, the bladder tract but also um, when we're low in estrogen in general all of our muscles are less strong whether that's in our you know our biceps or or around our bladder and so by helping the sort of the muscle tone that can also help with people's continence you know whether that mainly urinary but some people may have sort of like fecal incontinence from from um, muscle weakness so it can sort of help in both ways and just sort of strengthens all the supporting structures really. Mm. And a question that comes up over and over again and women often feel very alone with it is shall I have my ovaries out or shall I stay on long-term endocrine treatment and and often women sit at home with it and don't really know what that would mean and this one lady said I'm having to consider hysterectomy with or without the removal of my ovaries I'm 45 and chemo last year for breast cancer I'm now on tamoxifen and my oncologist seems to be quite negative about the impact of total estrogen removal can you quantify the health concerns and help weigh up the risks if any way to mitigate them without HRT I mean it's a tough one isn't it yeah, I mean, I think you've obviously got your immediate risks of surgery, haven't you? Your, you know, your retinal anaesthetic risks, bleeding infection. So you've got your immediate post-surgical uh, risks, and then you've got your post-operative risks. Time to recover, especially with a hysterectomy. Um, you know, time off work. If you've got a young family, um, so it's all that to consider. You can. You can do some damage if you, you have a hysterectomy. Um, you know, you can damage the bladder, the ureters. So again, there's there's those risks, but there's then the obvious risks. If you take out the ovaries, you go into immediate surgical menopause, and that's not like a natural menopause. That is, and I don't need to tell you this, Danny. It's like falling off a cliff, isn't it? Having that immediate surgical menopause, and I think a lot of people aren't maybe counselled fully about that and don't expect it and they, it li literally just hits them immediately after surgery that kind of falling off a cliff feeling so um you know although in some circumstances taking the tubes and the ovaries out is a good thing such as, as if you've got gene you know, gene positive BRCA that probably is a very very sensible thing to do um in other circumstances you've really got to weigh up the the, the pros and the cons how do we arrive at decisions like that, Sarah? So if someone, you know, hasn't got access to their oncologist for another few months or their surgeon and we're sitting at home and we're Googling, I mean, without having access to private menopause specialists, what sort of questions do we need to ask ourselves as the patient that can help us? Like what questions would you ask a patient? I'm thinking if we could ask them ourselves, then maybe we can prepare a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I suppose like any decision we make in life, you've always got to weigh up the well what well if I go for this operation what are the possible benefits of that and have I properly understood the, the statistics around that but then also what if I don't have that operation what's the possible outcomes from that we're very good at kind of thinking of risks of something but we often don't turn it on its head and think of the opposite and I think often and, and it is much better this situation now but trying to approach people that have been in the similar situation so for example if you are a maybe a 
BRCA1 or 2 gene carrier and you're wondering about whether to have your ovaries removed or not, which is a, you know, it's a it's a big and very individual decision, but you might a- approach, a, you know, a charity like um, uh, Overcome or, or, or a charity like that where, you know, you know that everyone involved in that charity was probably been through similar decisions and they can help as well. I think it is difficult. Again, this is not a generalisation about surgeons at all, but we always have to remember that most of us as medics, maybe we're probably the least guilty of this because we're general practitioners. Most people work in their silo of expertise. So they, you know, a a gynaecologist, for example, might remove someone's ovaries, you know, five times a week, for example, but they might not necessarily then see the broader picture, if you see what I mean. Well, what does that mean for my bones down the line? Or what does that mean for, um, again, often a decision about having the ovaries removed has to go along with, well, do you take the womb at the same time or do you not take the womb at the same time? And again, that depends on why you're having the operation in the first place. But that then has knock-on effects on if you were to choose HRT in the future for whatever reason, that then influences the type of HRT you would have. So there's knock-on decisions which lead on from that, if you see what I mean. And yeah. it's it's again trying not to feel that patients are rushed into decisions that they don't fully understand what's down the line afterwards. I often look back and think, oh, I wish I had allowed myself more time in some of the decisions I've made in my own care rather than this gung-ho, I do it all, I do it all now, 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 Mm. take my left hand. (laughs) But hindsight um, is a great thing, isn't it? I know. And and especially as, and this isn't obviously always the case, but especially when we're predominantly talking about women today, those women aren't isolated beings, are they? They usually have family to consider or their, you know, job or, and so you do what you have to do in a, often down the priority list don't you so you go well I could do that but then I'd have to have six weeks without driving and how will the children get to their football matches so little details like that can actually become an important determinant of whether someone chooses to have an operation or not yeah Um, absolutely and everything influences us and who influences us I think it's so fascinating when we start to dig a little bit deeper in how we make decisions but I do think a really really good nugget of advice is just to think can I take a big breath and even mm. if I move my decision out by a week, in the grand mm. scheme of things, it's probably going to be okay and allow me a bit more yeah. thinking space. We could be here for a long, 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 long time more. And I've got lots, lots, lots more questions I'm not going to answer and ask them now because I've taken up so much of your time already. Thank you for your chat today and for just talking about it all. It's really, really wonderful. And I know from previous feedback, Alison, when you've been on before, how important it is for people and really listening to both of you and all the other experts. Sometimes that's just the sort of key we need to unlock our next step. And, and we know it's only ever one step in our sort of path to recovery or working our way through treatment. And that's wonderful when you can help us make that happen. So thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having us. <laughs> yeah thank you for having us Daniel. thank you for your amazing podcast because it is it, it's a real like you know people feel very lonely on these journeys don't they and and, and I think having you know, a podcast like this can actually feel like having your kind of best friend in your pocket kind of is like yeah, there's, there's, like there's someone out there that that understands and that has has got all these resources and you know bits you can dip into when you feel able to One of my patients said listening to you made she just didn't feel alone anymore.
Ah, that's good. So, well, she can yeah. listen to you again now, which is fantastic. <laughs> Thank well, you both. She's listened to me enough. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you for listening and for being part of this conversation because I never feel I just talk to my experts. I always feel I talk to our experts with all of you in the back of my head. And I hope I do a good job at that, asking all the questions you might want to ask when you are watching and when you're listening. And the second thing I want to say is if you haven't yet followed the show, please follow the podcast. Go and click follow. And if you can leave a review, that would be amazing. And if you can find out how to actually write a little review, do that as well. It's the only way other people are going to find our show. There are millions of people out there who are in a similar situation than us. They're all feeling undersupported, not hurt, thinking they have no options and that no one else is out there going through a similar thing. So follow the show, leave a review, rate the show so that others can find the information we provide. Thank you. Wishing you a great day and I can't wait to engage with you, perhaps in one of our upcoming workshops, perhaps in the Facebook community, maybe send a message on Instagram. Um, we have so many exciting things planned um, through our new community interest company. And I can't wait to involve you all, get you all on board. But for today, wishing you a good rest of your day. Bye.